One of the greatest blessings in life is being able to do a long retreat. How wonderful it is to be here together. And how even more wonderful to be able to practice together, to be here at this time on the planet. And sometimes we forget that simplicity of the blessing of being together. There's a kind of uh, poignancy or bittersweetness to the last night of a retreat, uh, kind of with that anticipation of speaking and talking moving into the world of doing, relating, acting, connecting. I think it's bittersweet because most everyone will have a feeling of appreciating the aloneness and being able to have so much time for one's inner life, one's inner spiritual life. So one has to say goodbye to this sacred space, this really protected space. And yet, most people are really already uh, hungry for the connecting with friends again, family, or whoever. So there's that bittersweetness. There's a new book of poems out by Pablo Neruda. This is, he wrote uh, eight books the last year of his life. So this is a poem from a book of poems called The Sea and the Bells. Is the sea there? Tell it to come in. Bring me the great bell, one of the green race. Not that one, the other one, the one that has a crack in its bronze mouth. And now, nothing more I want to be alone with my essential sea and the bell. I don't want to speak for a long time. Silence. I still want to learn. I want to know if I exist. We've been in the silence and we haven't spoken for a long time. And we've just been in this world of bells, you know, the gongs. It's really an extraordinary world. It's really interesting to be able to see that the world of retreat is no different than everyday life. It's the same. 
And yet it's also quite different and it's possible to actually hold both of these in our hearts. You know, there's a paradox. It's, it's very different. You know, you'll have, you know, we never have any idea how sensitive we've gotten on retreat until we come out. Uh, we are very protected here. And yet it's the same. We'll still be seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, and thinking. You know, there's absolutely, you know, no difference. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny, actually. <laughs> Last year, uh, some of us were sitting here with Upandita, and uh, someone had to go out in the middle of the retreat to go to a dentist. Uh, this person had a root canal that had to be taken care of. So about, I think it was six weeks into the retreat, uh, this person had to go to the dentist. So uh, most of us uh, knows this dentist, and he's uh, worked on a lot of IMS yogis, and he's worked on especially three-month course yogis. So he's sort of used to, you know, the kind of mind, yogi mind. And so (laughs) he had been wanting to meet this person for a long time because he'd heard about her. And so she went in and about every five minutes, she said, am I acting normal? <laughs> and so he told me later, <laughs> finally I said to her, if she'd stopped asking me if she was acting normal, I would have thought she was normal. <laughs> you know, you'll <laughs> it's really interesting to go out you know, and to start talking. You won't feel normal. You know, and you don't have to bother to ask people. (laughs) I was talking with someone today about uh, her coming out of retreat at the end of the three-month course the first time. And she felt so sensitive and was taking such great care. You know, she just met with a few friends in the dining room, you know, for a little while and then went back to sit. And she said that all night, every single thing she said kept repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. And it's just, it's amazing because you've been so quiet in watching every little thought, you know, and just every bell and every sound. Uh, and then to move into the world of talking, it's excruciating. You know, there's, there's no other way to describe it. <laughs> you know, because it, there's no way you can kind of jump into the water that gently. You know, I'm, I'll encourage you to keep the schedule. You know, we'll, we have a schedule and to try to sit a lot. Once I start talking after retreat, I can't stop. <laughs> So hopefully you'll do better than I do, because I usually have to take it several aspirin over a course of days to, to uh, be used to taking that much stimulus in. You know, you're just, it's mostly that you're not used to taking the stimulus in, and it'll feel almost like you know you've gotten poisoned. It's like overeating, you know. <laughs> or watching too much TV. It's like talking too much after fasting. You've been fasting for a long time. 
So I can't encourage you enough to try doing it gently and to ease back to sitting or walking and then to go talk a bit more and try not to avoid it. You know, I used to try to avoid it, but there's, it's sort of like, um, you know, I just kind of bow to the end of the retreat. And just, you might just do a little ritual, just say goodbye, you know, to the silence. There's so many ways to speak about uh, not knowing how sensitive we are when we come out of a retreat. I have a friend that came out of a retreat last year after about six weeks of sitting, and she didn't spend any time trying to integrate. Uh, she did Vipassana for about five weeks, and then I think Metta for about a week, or maybe a bit longer. She just got in a limousine and got to the airport, got on the plane, and was reading a Time magazine. And so um, she read that uh, Indira Gandhi's son had been assassinated in India. He was the president of India. Uh, And she just started sobbing and sobbing. She was so soft from the match, she was just crying and crying. And so the stewardess came up to her, and all the people around her came up to her, and they were saying, are you all right? What's wrong? And she said, Oh, his poor family. I'm just so sad for his family. And she just was like, did you read this? You know. <laughs> she said, they must be suffering so much. And she just cried and cried. And no one spoke to her the rest of the trip. It's interesting, actually. <laughs> I don't know where this part of the talk is, but um, <laughs> if anyone asks you what it was like that's never meditated before, you know, be careful. You know, because all you can really say is, "Well, what did you do?" You know, "Well, I sat and I walked and I sat and I walked." And we had lunch, and we had a really good lunch, you know, the fifth day and the 20th day. And if you describe it, people will think you're crazy if they haven't sat before. It just sounds incredibly boring. You know, it just, (laughs) it doesn't sound interesting in any way for people. But what people do get very affected by is if we're kinder or if we listen well. Uh, it's the quality of our awareness, the quality of being with people that just touches people so much. Um, there's no need at ever to be a missionary with this practice uh, because it's just the changes that people see in you that will affect people the most deeply. And it usually comes from nothing that we say. One thing to keep in mind is that uh, a lot of momentum builds up on a retreat, and usually uh, what we lose 
initially is a sense of any kind of concentration. And a lot of we will say, well, I don't have any anyway. But, <laughs> you know, you have some concentration, you know, relatively to yourself. You'll have a lot of concentration at the end of a three-month course. Uh, and it's, with concentration, there's always fear. We can always lose it. You know, and there's always that underneath concentration. But with mindfulness, it can happen any moment. There's no momentum with it. It just, it's any moment where you remember to come back. And that can happen any time. It doesn't need any momentum. And it's something to remember that one can be very protected by. Being able to move in and out of uh, sitting and walking and then talking is a great, again, opportunity to practice being able to remember to be mindful, to be mindful in speech, which is really hard, uh, and to remember that we can bring the mindfulness into the daily life, that the practice doesn't end tomorrow morning. It keeps going. And it's interesting how there's, often there's this kind of either conscious or unconscious devaluing of daily life, or you know, that somehow the practice is so much more rich or important on a retreat or on the cushion. Um, but each moment of our life is important. You know, each moment of our life is the practice. It has nothing to do with whether we're in retreat or on, you know, off retreat. And it's important to cut through that duality. It creates a lot of suffering for us if we think, if we value the practice here more than the practice in our lives, in our daily life. If we're truly practicing every moment of our lives, there's never any need to feel like we're wasting our time. We spend a lot of time waiting in this world. Maybe we're waiting at a traffic light. Or maybe we're waiting for an elevator. Or we're waiting for someone to come. You know, and sometimes, you know, there's this sense of uh, being impatient. People get impatient waiting for interviews. It's kind of funny. <laughs> it always kind of cracks me up, you know, because, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and, and we get this idea that waiting in a traffic light is somehow so much worse than sitting on a zafu. But it's just a moment. And we can practice mindfulness, so we can practice metta. We can really practice compassion in traffic, you know, or whatever. It's like washing the dishes, you know, or going to sleep, or waking up, or having trouble with someone at work. It's so easy to think of these things as, you know, these great interruptions of our practice. Uh, But actually, that's the practice. Falling out of mindfulness is the practice. Breaking a precept is the practice. You know, it's like it's the whole show is the practice. 
And it's important to see that whenever we're being impatient or waiting, that we can just do vipassana, we can do equanimity practice, we can do mudita. It's just, it's amazing. It's all it takes is remembering. You know, and (laughs) it's that little (laughs) glitch. (laughs) It's a big glitch, really. It's remembering. And that's, you know, the practice is remembering. Sati or mindfulness means recollecting the mind over and over. There's an awesome uh, need for the metta practice in our in our world right now. Metta is a kind of respectful and profound conversation with the land, with other beings, with ourselves. So this is an old poem by Mary Oliver. Once only, and then in a dream, I watched while secretly and with the tenderness of any caring woman, a cow gave birth to a red calf, tongued him dry and nursed him in a warm corner of the clear night, in the fragrant grass, in the wild domains of the prairie spring. And I asked them, in my dream, I knelt down and asked them to make room for me. It's a wonderful image. It's the same image that the Buddha used for metta, that quality of uh, blessing, of the moment when a mother cow gives birth to a calf, that, that just that moment of making the connection, the eyes, the body. Uh, and we can develop this metta, this kind of care in our heart, so that people will want to make room like this in our heart where all beings will want to make a room for themselves in our heart. What, what could be a better practice? So we can practice mindfulness, vipassana, any moment we can practice uh, the four Brahma Viharas, any moment, making a space in our heart for ourselves and all beings. We can practice generosity that a lot of um, teachers have been talking about lately. We can practice sila or morality. Uh, Sila or morality is practicing kindness. It's a, it's a non-harming of ourselves or other beings. And uh, non-harming or sila morality is esteemed by all people in this world. It cuts across all, all race, gender, national borders. And we can learn to cherish uh, the moral beauty of all human beings 
as well as we can develop the understanding, the uh, awful ease in which human beings can be corrupted. And again, can we hold that in our heart? How easily we can be corrupted, how easily we can be pure, uh, and how others can be so easily corrupted, or to see the beauty in a moment of sila. It takes a lot of understanding and compassion to hold, hold these, again, this kind of paradox in our heart, because human beings can be awesomely corruptible. I was thinking about the five precepts and went through them all in my mind and remembering the first time I broke each one in my life. And I'd encourage you to try it. It's quite interesting. I didn't want to dare go through all of them, but I I was going to share one, which as I remember the first time I told a lie. And I remember uh, I was very young and my mother couldn't stand to say no. She couldn't say no to people. And the Fuller Brush Man, do you remember? Remember the Fuller Brush Man? The Fuller Brush Man would come to the door. She'd run in the bathroom, slam the door, and say, tell him I'm not home. (laughs) And I remember the first time I did that, I remember, you know, thinking, you know, you're not supposed to lie, you know, and going to the door and having that, you know, feeling of do I betray my mother or do I betray my heart? And knowing that I'd get creamed if I betrayed my mother, I lied. <laughs> and I remember it felt terrible. That moment of it feeling terrible is really important. Because what happens for us is we get hardened. And that's so much of what's behind the... Uh, like saying the precepts every day, or, or not, not seeing them as something which we are born into and that we are able to do, because we wouldn't be on the human plane if we um, didn't make mistakes. <laughs> We'd be in a different plane of existence. And so we come in, and one of the ways we learn about non-harming is when we blow it, and it feels terrible. And often what happens in the Judeo-Christian tradition is that then we get this added burden of guilt and feeling evil. And it just just drags the heart into a muck uh, that almost makes it impossible uh, to kind of come to terms with being human. So the idea is, is to be able to really cherish that feeling that it doesn't feel good, to, to, to be open to that and listen so that when we notice that, because I can guarantee you that right speech is so difficult. It's probably the most difficult. Um, it's the most difficult on the day-to-day level precept to keep. And you'll go back and sit and think about something you said. <laughs> and it's, it's unbelievable what we can do with our speech. You know, it's awesome. Uh, And we have the intention. I mean, it's not like we don't have the intention to uh, be careful, but it's so easy to slide into just the slightest bit of backbiting. Or, you know, we're talking about someone 
and, and to notice the difference between if that person was there or not. It's the same with killing. You know, it's like the idea behind the precept is to notice how it feels. And if one starts to shut down to that feeling that it doesn't feel good, it gets easier to kill. Whether it's a mosquito, you know, or a rat, or whatever. It's not that sometimes as householders we might have giardia or something, you know, or whatever, but there's times when there is, you know, a time when we might have to kill. Uh, Hopefully not, but the Buddha did recommend to be monks or nuns. One of the reasons for that is because, you know, monks and nuns are protected. They're so much more protected than householders. You know, so in Burma at the Yekta, the monks and nuns don't, don't kill the mosquitoes, but they've sprayed DDT. Someone sprays the DDT. You see, it's interesting. Uh, and as householders, it's, one is up against that kind of thing. I'm not talking about murder, <coughs> murdering human beings, but there are these moments when you have 10,000 ants on the counter, and what are you going to do about it? If you're in a hurry, it's very difficult. (laughs) You know, there's a tendency to just get the sponge and go zoop, you know. And then if if you feel bad about it, you'll shut down. You know, if you if you can't open to the pain of it, then it gets easier to kill. And so it takes this enormous respect uh, for life and to do the best we can. Someone gave me a book called The uh, Singing Creek Where the Willows Grow. It's an extraordinary book. It's the diary of Opal Whiteley. And this um, girl wrote a diary uh, when she was six years old. And, and the neighbors, you know, she grew up out in the woods in the logging, in logging camps in Oregon in the late 1800s. And someone might slip her a piece of paper and she'd write uh, on it. And then she'd hide them all over the woods and trees and in bark. And um, later someone in her family ripped it all up. And she kept all the pieces in a hat box. Later in her life, an editor asked her to put them together for the journal. Uh, And it took her years to glue all the pieces together. And it's just, it's just like reading the mind of a child. You know, she was able to do it. Uh, And this is, I'm encouraging you to kind of get in touch with those initial moments when one broke Sila, because usually it's, it's, uh, it brings us back to the time when we uh, were so sensitive. She said, Sometimes I share my bread and jam with yellow jackets who have a home on the bush by the road, 20 trees and one distant from the garden. Today I climbed upon the old rail fence close to their home with a piece and a half of bread and jam and the half piece for them, and the piece for myself. But they all wanted to be served at once, so it became necessary to turn over all bread and jam on hand. 
I broke it into little pieces, and they had a royal feast there on the old fence rail. I wanted my bread and jam, but then yellow jackets are such interesting fairies, being among the world's first paper makers, and baby yellow jackets are just such chubby youngsters. Thinking of these things makes it a joy to share one's bread and jam with these wasp fairies. Remember the time, you know, when you couldn't kill an ant, when you couldn't kill a mosquito, when you were friends with mice, when you couldn't tell a lie. You know, that's, that, that purity is in us. And when, it, when we do do something that isn't skillful and it hurts, it's good that it hurts. <laughs> Just think if it didn't hurt, it, we would be miserable. <laughs> There'd be no hope. And it's so that it takes that ability to listen and to be kind and to forgive. You know, this world requires an enormous compassion for all human beings because it's a hard struggle uh, to keep the precepts. That's, that's why when Stephen talked about the monk Mioe, uh, who said at the end of his life, I come from those beings who keep the precepts, it's such a powerful thing to say when one dies. It's like... Um, When we're free from greed, hatred, and delusion, we, we can't not keep the precepts. So the means of the practice and the end are the same. You know, we keep the precepts as a, as a way of understanding that, uh, that helps us not to feel like separate eyes. It helps us uh, develop understanding and compassion. important uh, not to create a division between those who we know who practice and those who don't practice. I had a neighbor up in Maine when I lived way out in the woods up in Maine uh, who I felt was probably a true, a very true Christian. He lived out the best of um, what Christ taught. And I'd never met anyone um, quite like her. She, was, she didn't finish junior high school. Uh, and she was probably one of the most spiritually mature beings I've ever met. And just um, some people can practice a long time doing this practice and still not be that mature. You know, she had incredible paramis. And there'll be people in this world that might not do this practice, but they have extraordinary paramis. Uh, so be careful of ever creating a division between um, those who practice, those who don't. When we first moved up to Maine, it, um, I moved up there with my sister and three children and brother-in-law and some friends from college. And the only people who didn't look hippie-like were 
um, the kids, <laughs> the children. And so this was just so far out in Maine. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, and these people had never seen anyone like us. They just, it was just so remote. And most people there, we, I moved up in the summer, and most people there didn't talk to me for a long time. And then my sis, we built a house, and my sister moved up with the children. And this neighbor, this neighbor that I'm talking about, who I felt was so developed, even though I think it must have been so difficult for her to do this, you know, she came up to me and asked us all down for dinner. And I looked at her. I was so surprised. You know, I looked at her. I said, are you sure? You know, there were like 10 of us. And she said, yeah, I'm just being neighborly. Uh, and there was a sense of, you know, from that moment on, they just showered us with kindness. I mean, the family just showered us with kindness and would give us, I mean, they would give us things like pigs and dogs and cats. I mean, they, they didn't have much. They had corn, you know, they had tomatoes. But anything they had, they would just, you know, flood us with. Uh, <laughs> and there, this was amazing. Uh, the first time we ate there, <laughs> um, I, I don't know, the children, I, the, you know, still I don't think we'll ever recover from it. We went down there, and this was their best. This was their best. Uh, they had some paper plates, and we got in a line to serve ourselves, and they had picked fresh fiddleheads. I don't know if you know what they are, but they're these ferns that grow out in the middle of the rivers in the spring. They come up, and they're very wild and very wild-tasting. So there were these hot fiddleheads, strange-looking. I mean, the kids were sort of like, oh, <laughs> oh no, fiddleheads, you know. <laughs> and they had butter melting all over them, green, you know. Well, that's one thing. And then there was like three-day-old popcorn. That was the next thing you put in your plate. You put these fiddleheads and then popcorn. And then the third thing you put on your plate, you know that ice cream that was strawberry, vanilla, chocolate? That's the next thing that went on the plate. <laughs> and my nephew was about three years old, you know, and his eyes were like, you know, <laughs> he just, and none of us could look at each other because we were just going to die laughing. I mean, we just, nobody could look, you know, we just, you know, eight. Um, you know, and it, you know, this, this was their best. They, you know, they were just giving and gave and gave and gave and gave, and they taught us about generosity. They taught us about what it's like that even if you're afraid to cross a barrier, um, you know, with people that seem so strange to you, and just totally take them into your home. It's an amazing gift. We're really very dependent upon each other. And living out there, it really taught me how people really need to be good neighbors. Just like in this hall, sitting next to each other, it's so important to be good neighbors. I think the most difficult for, thing for human beings is actually to be kind to each other. And one can do a lot of practice and still uh, maybe not display that. 
It takes a lot of um, development of wisdom and compassion to be kind to each other, and especially around speech. So I'm going to do a commercial. It'll get you prepared for television. <clears throat> this is a commercial for the dog here named Magic. And um, this is a commercial for the opportunity to, for anyone here to express some kindness. There's um, this dog here named Magic. It's a German Shepherd that uh, runs around and has such a great personality. He was dropped off here, this, um, like, I think it was May. You know, he just, somebody just left him here. So I've been calling it an act of God. You know, insurance companies call certain things an act of God. This is an act of God, but um, the rules at IMS are that there's no, there's supposed to be no pets. Uh, And Denise Sullivan in the office has been taking care of him, but she has to, find a home for him. So um, if anyone here could possibly, (laughs) you know, if you have room in your house or like you have a home, it's a great dog uh, and it would be greatly appreciated. Just one commercial. End of commercial. Hopefully somebody will find a home for him. The play, The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe by Jane Wagner, uh, one of the lines in the play are, I personally think we developed language because of our deep inner need to complain. Uh, and it's possible to actually transform this deep inner need <laughs> to complain or be heard uh, into the art of listening. And maybe just give it 50%. You know, if you could just, you know, try 50% listening, it would be, you know, that's a great thing to do. Try not to have too high an expectation. Um, but it is, it's very difficult in talking with people not to want to be heard or not to want to you know, be right or not to want to judge uh, and just to stay within one's own body, to be centered and you know, to listen, to wait, and then speak. Um, there's a book called Full Catastrophe Living, by Johnny Kabat-Zinn, who teaches uh, stress reduction uh, in a lot of places in Massachusetts now. He started at UMass Medical Center. He calls it, in private, the Dhamma in disguise. And at one point in time, uh, a, a group of judges came through the stress reduction program. And I have a friend who's a criminal lawyer uh, in western Massachusetts, and he went to trial one day. Um, 
And the judge started to tell the jury to, do, to practice mindful listening. And he was so surprised. <laughs> he couldn't believe he heard the judge telling the jury to be mindful. And, and this is, you know, this is the great thing about the practice now. It's sort of moving out into the world. Uh, and even people in jury are kind of being encouraged to listen, to be mindful. In terms of communicating, it is something that happens that we get hurt, or people, or you know, we hurt, or people hurt, and in our life. And I think that the more we actually care about human beings, care about life, the more we really can love human beings, the more that. Uh, life will hurt. Human beings aren't perfect. We do make mistakes, and we usually harm when there's greed, hatred, or delusion, when we do feel in pain or separate. And it's important to reflect at times on what love really is, because... uh, what it is that we love about ourselves or other people. Do we love greed, hatred, and delusion? Is there something deeper than that? And it's, 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 love is so much deeper than the pleasure that um, we want to uh, have yielded to us in a relationship or in relating or in, in communicating. And the practice is so valuable in communication because we can see that we can open to unpleasant aspects of each other, not just needing people to be pleasant. Um, But the tendency is to need people to be pleasant. It feels so much better. Uh, And and again, it's to reflect on what love is. is. Is love something more than that? Can we open to something deeper? No one is perfectly pleasurable all the time, <laughs> as much as we aspire to it. So a great practice is being motivated to understand in our communication rather than to judge or to blame. And again, it, it might sound kind of easy as I'm talking now, but if we ever have difficulty with anyone, it's so much easier to blame or to judge than to kind of settle back and to feel the unpleasantness of a disagreement or a difficulty, to open to the unpleasantness, and then to say, you know, this hurt me, this behavior wasn't okay, or to find out that maybe we, mispre- we maybe misperceived something that someone did or said, that communication uh, is, is what allows us to understand what's happening in relationships. But if we're motivated you know, from a place of needing to be right or blaming, we'll f- the person will feel attacked and closed down, and it's much harder to do any kind of understanding of what's happening.
So just play, play with the speech. Watch what happens when you speak. Watch what happens when you come back to silence. It's, it's quite challenging and interesting and fun. There's another aspect to speech, which is speaking the truth. It's not, not just not harming, but speaking the truth. There's a real power in the word. This year's Nobel Peace Prize winner is a woman named Rigoberta Menchu. She's 32 years old and she's barely five foot tall and she's a Guatemalan Indian. She's a human rights activist and she, um, her father was a well-known political leader. He was assassinated. Her mother was tortured and killed. Her brothers were all killed. She lost her whole family. Uh, And she uh, was motivated to learn Spanish. She learned 22 different Indian languages and wrote a book about what happened in Guatemala for her and for uh, the people living there. And I won't go into how horrible uh, things have been in Guatemala for the Indians. But she, this is what she wrote about why she wrote the book. Testimony is reliving a whole series of human elements, and many of these can be so transcendental. They go beyond any form of thinking. To capture this in a book is what makes testimony so valuable. Speaking the truth, not being silenced. Oppression, injustice, it isn't okay. It's not right. It's not right to be harming people in these ways. In Vipassana, we learn an unconditional acceptance of all that happens. And this means that by really deeply surrendering to life and how things are in the human world, that it makes what um, happens in our life workable and what we see happening for others workable. Um, But that doesn't mean that we stay passive. It means that we can more and more be able to speak the truth about when something isn't right. Just because we accept something doesn't mean that it makes it right. And the Dalai Lama, or this woman, Rigoberta Menchu, they're not staying silent. They're not attacking. They're not um, attacking, yet they're, they're just being very balanced and saying, no, this isn't okay. What happened in Tibet? No, that's not okay. And it still isn't okay. What's happening in Guatemala? No, it's not okay. And it still isn't okay. That's part of right speech when we see something that isn't okay. There's so much power in speaking the truth. You know, this woman, it's amazing that she won the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, it's just extraordinary.
So hopefully we might have learned from this retreat that it doesn't take much to be happy. One of the things that I remember the first times of coming out of retreats is how simple and happy it was to share a bowl of popcorn with someone. Uh, what, what you need to be happy will, will just start being less and less. And it might be that, you know, watching a snowflake land on one's hand and watching it melt, you know, that that's enough. You know, what, what do we really need to be happy watching a cloud go through the sky? or having a friend. We're up against a very materialistic, competitive culture and a power, you know, a culture that thrives in a kind of power uh, that's very different than this kind of simple contentment. This is a quotation from Anne Lindbergh, Gift from the Sea. It's about motivation. Our motivation is everything. The the sea does not reward those who are too anxious, too greedy, or too impatient. To dig for treasures shows not only impatience and greed, but lack of faith. Patience, patience, patience is what the sea teaches. Patience and faith. One should lie empty, open, choiceless as a beach, waiting for a gift from the sea. The mind can be like that, you know, shoreline that's so clean and empty, you know, just waiting for a gift from the sea. One time I saw a film about um, Martin Luther King's early years in Selma, Alabama. And he was speaking to a group of Afro-Americans in a church. And these people were the poorest of the poor. You know, they had nothing materially. And they were incredibly oppressed. illiterate, weren't allowed to go to school. And Martin Luther King told them that we all have the capacity to die. He said, we all have the capacity to die for our freedom. And the first time I saw that, I just couldn't believe my ears, you know, that he was telling this group of people that what they had, you know, the only thing they had was this the capacity to die for their freedom. And these people, when he came in, looked so depressed and downtrodden. You could just see when they made that connection, you know, their eyes just lit up and their faces lit up and there was this incredible transformation of their spirit. It's like he gave their dignity back. He gave them their spirits back by telling them they could die for their freedom. And it's important to ask what happened to these people, you know, for such radiance to come out of such a difficult situation. 
And basically, no matter how rich or poor we are, or what class we're from, how educated we are, or what color, race, or gender, we can all put our lives in the line for freedom. And freedom on the deepest level is a spiritual freedom, and that's what he awoke in their hearts. And this is what we're doing in the practice. Are you willing to die for your freedom? And that's, is, are you willing to give up a sense of separate self, a sense of being a separate I? Are we willing to let go of greed, hatred, and delusion? And in any moment of mindfulness, you know, maybe it's one a day, you know, so what? But in any moment of mindfulness, you know, we've let go of greed, hatred, and delusion. I know, and that's the willingness to die for our freedom. It's the willingness to let go of being a separate I. And any kind of spiritual transformation means a fundamental change in motives. And we're only free when our motivation goes through a transformation. And so what, what are we motivated by in our life? What, what, what motivates each of our actions? Uh, mostly our motivation will be mixed. And yet it's possible to see that in our life. We'll be able to see that our motivation might be mixed. Maybe we came on retreat to lose weight as well as develop mindfulness. You know, there's always those little, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. There's always these mixtures of what we do. And then it's, it's being able to understand that and go to a deeper place. You know, maybe we gave away that chocolate because we really didn't want it, you know, or whatever. Um, maybe we cooked that meal for someone because we thought we should. But just feeding someone is a great act. You know, these, the, in our life, you know, to feed someone is probably one of the most wonderful things we can do. In anything that we do, what really matters, what matters supremely is the motivation. Are we motivated out of greed, hatred, and delusion? Are we able to go to a deeper place? And if it, the motivation's mixed, that doesn't matter. It, we can still see that and, and find the deepest place and try to come from that. So dignity is, dignity and integrity is being able to, to see that we're willing to die for our freedom. We're willing to let go of the sense of being a separate I, because that's so much suffering. It's what kills the spirit. Sometimes we might be drawn to sitting in a cave for 33 years, you know. Maybe we're drawn to do a three-month retreat. And other times we might be drawn to be in the world for a long time, or maybe part of a year. They're both equally valid. 
we can develop just as much mindfulness, just as that metta, mudita, compassion, equanimity in our life, in our daily life, as we can in retreat. Uh, and so it's, what's most important is to listen. Listen to what you're called to and to respect that. Because anything that we do in life is worthwhile if we're practicing, whether it's washing the dishes or sitting on a zafu or feeding the homeless, whatever it is, it's just the intention that matters. And it could be just the wrong thing to be in a retreat, and it might be just the right thing to not be, or it might be the vice versa. And you can't tell by looking at anybody else. It has to, we're very unique how we're going to be unfolding in terms of the practice in this country. There's really no models. We're doing it very differently than in Asia. And it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's great um, to be able to listen and follow our hearts. So hopefully we learn to value every moment of our life equally. I'd like to end with a um, wish for you to, for good luck in the next few days, to be gentle, to take great care with your heart and others' hearts. This is a quotation from Kim Stafford. I took my little girl to the circus once at the Coliseum on a hot afternoon. By the fountain outside before the show, she ripped off her shoes and socks to wade, working her way along the square tiled edge just at the rim of the deep. Dad, she called, I'm going all the way around. Water scattered up, several mothers turned to me. I could see the questions in their faces and in hers. Would I let her go? I nodded. I knew she would fall in. (laughs) She started around, walking the edge with her hands thrust out for balance, creeping along the first side and wobbling, turning at the corner. Halfway along the second side, Water sprayed across her path. She will make it across there, I thought, across the tough place. Then she will fall. (laughs) Her steps slowed. It was hard to see her footing in the spray. I watched her through the gauze of water. Then beyond the spray, where her footing was better, she turned to look at me, and she fell. (laughs) She smiled over her shoulder and fell. With a splash, she went down into the pool. Not a swimmer, but a mother near her grabbed her and hoisted her out, and she came paddling to me, padding to me across the hot pavement. Her dress left a trail of wet. Her hair streamed down, and her face was bright. She stood stubby tall before me. When I was falling, Dad, I heard a little voice, but it didn't say, be afraid. It said, have fun falling. (laughs) 
her eyebrows went up and her mouth clamped into a line of conviction. When I live my life now, when I write, when I enter a hard time, an uncertain way, I want my little voice saying, have fun falling. Have fun tumbling into the changes that rain and root and every pair of wings has to carry out a secret the wind and lightning and sorrow and love keep making plain. By falling, you find the bottom, and without that, no joy. So have fun falling the next few days. (laughs) Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.